Hello, and welcome to the Faithful Forebears. Episode 2 Augustine, Theodore, and Bede. Last time, we heard how Gregory the Great took a weakened and endangered Roman church and strengthened it into a more robust organization that could survive the troubles of the hard centuries ahead. But not only did Gregory stabilize the church, but he also expanded it. Part of that included sending out missionaries to Europe. The mission of special importance to Gregory was the mission of the island of Britain. But before we get into that adventure, first we need to look a little at what was happening in Britain around this time, that is right around the year 600 AD. So ever since Britain had been conquered by Rome, way back in the first century AD by Emperor Claudius, it had always been on the extreme edge of the empire. This meant that whenever the empire was seriously threatened, Britain was one of the first places to be abandoned, so the empire could defend more critical areas. This is exactly what happened in 410 AD. The Roman garrisons left to protect other areas, but this time they left for good. The native Roman Britons were left to fend for themselves against the various barbarians surrounding them. Through the three and four hundreds Germanic tribes, from what is now northern Germany and Denmark, had been slowly emigrating to Britain sometimes peacefully, sometimes not so peacefully. But in the 440s, these migrations became major invasions. Soon the Isle of Britain was split between the old Roman Britons on the eastern side and the Germanic tribes on the western side. The two biggest of these Germanic tribes were known as the Angles and the Saxons. It's from the Angles' name that we get the name England, and soon they would be called English. By the 7th century, the area we know as England today was split up into seven Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, this period is known as the Heptarchy, and these Germanic tribes were all pagan. But while Britain was now pagan, it had had a church before. Back when Britain was still part of the empire, when Constantine had legalized Christianity, that had included Britain. Since that time, there had been a Roman-British church. So now there was a split in Britain, between the old Christian Britons and the new Angles and Saxons, between some sparse old Christian communities and new pagan kingdoms. This was the Britain that the missionaries found when they arrived in 596 AD. The impetus for the mission had been Gregory's passion for the evangelism of the English, as we heard last episode, but it was also because of a favorable circumstance brought by a marriage. One of the pagan Saxon kings, a man named Ethelbert, who ruled Kent, had married a Christian Frankish princess. Gregory saw this as an opportunity for Ethelbert to accept missionaries to his domain, since his wife was now a Christian. So he picked a fellow monk from his monastery of St. Andrews, Augustine. Now this man is not to be confused with the more famous Augustine of Hippo, who wrote the Confessions in the City of God. This man would be known as Augustine of Canterbury. So Augustine and his fellow monks prepared for their journey. And their journey from Rome to England would not be an easy one. Even though Gregory had made Rome a much safer place, Western Europe at large was still in chaos after the Roman Empire had fallen. Gregory had gone to great lengths to write letters asking for safe passage to all the various Christian princes whose land Augustine and their fellow missionaries would travel through. With letters in hand, the monks started their journey. But the first part of the journey was hard, and the group soon was discouraged. Stories began circulating in the group that their final destination was a dark, misty island with strange natives. By the time the group reached southern France, they were ready to turn back. 
Augustine was so swayed by them that he even left the group to travel back to Rome to ask Gregory if this mission trip was really a good idea. Gregory, I'm sure not terribly thrilled to see his fearless leader already doubting the mission, still encouraged Augustine enough to convince him to continue. Augustine returned to his group, a little more convinced this time, and they made their way without major incident to England. Once they arrived, the missionaries were greeted by King Ethelbert. The king requested that they might meet under an oak tree. This was mostly because he was afraid of any closed space because that might possibly allow Augustine to cast spells. You never can be too careful. According to Bede's The Ecclesiastical History of England, Augustine told Ethelbert that Jesus had redeemed a world of sin by his own agony and opened the kingdom of heaven to all who would believe. And even though possibly still worried about incantations, Ethelbert replied, your words and promises are very fair, but as they are new to us and of uncertain import, I cannot assess to them and give up what I have long held in common with the whole English nation. But since you come as a stranger from so great a distance, and, as I take it, are anxious to have us also share in what you conceive to be both excellent and true, we will not interfere with you, but rather receive you in kindly hospitality and care to provide what might be necessary for your support. Moreover, we make no objection to your winning as many converts as you can to your creed. End quote. Augustine really couldn't ask for much more for his mission. The missionaries were given a place to live even in Ethelbert's capital city of Canterbury. Augustine and his monks apparently impressed the king in their stay there because by the next Pentecost, King Ethelbert himself wanted to be baptized. However, even after his own conversion, he made it clear that none of his subjects would be forced to convert. It was up to each person as they saw fit. Augustine, who at the time was only a monk, then needed to travel back to the Frankish kingdom, modern-day France, to be consecrated a bishop. As a bishop, he could consecrate new priests himself and oversee this new Christian group. Once he was consecrated in France, he became the first archbishop of Canterbury. Augustine would lead this small new English church for seven years. However, Augustine did not always play nice in his time as archbishop, and sometimes he lacked the tact required for missionary and church work. As archbishop, he began to try to organize the British church, so he wisely got in contact with the native British Christians who had been there for hundreds of years already. These British Christians had much more in common with the Irish and Celtic Christians than they did with Rome directly, and they were used to having a great amount of independence. So they had some differences to work out. But sadly, Augustine proved that he was not willing or able to work with them. The first meeting was held at Malmesbury, and sadly, nothing came of it except that everyone left frustrated. There were three major sticking points that the two sides could not agree on. The mode of baptism, cooperation in evangelizing the island, and most important to them, the date of Easter. Little was accomplished, and everyone was angry. It was so bad, in fact, that a short time later a second meeting was held, but only seven Celtic bishops would attend. The legend says that the Celtic bishops were ready to give in to Augustine's demand, but an old sage told them that if Augustine stood when they greeted him, it meant that he was humble of heart, and they should follow him. If he did not stand, he was not humble, and he was not doing God's will. Well, Augustine didn't stand when they entered and he even refused to stand. So the seven Celtic bishops left, without anything being accomplished. 
except on their way out, Augustine did put a curse on them, saying, If ye will not have peace with the brethren, ye shall have war from your enemies. And if ye will not preach the way of life to the English, ye shall suffer the punishment of death at their hands. Well, several decades later, a group of monks from that monastery would be massacred by invading Norsemen, which everyone took to be proof that the curse worked. This episode between Augustine and the monks highlights not only Augustine's harshness, but some of the ethnic tensions between the Britons and the new Germanic English. The two groups did not like each other, and these tensions would continue for centuries. We see this because even when the native Britons hardly seem responsible for the breakdown in cooperation at this meeting, the English to come, future English, like the historian Bede, still kind of enjoyed telling stories about the old Britons' misfortune. Augustine died the same year as Gregory the Great, 604, and had made only partial success in England. He had appointed several bishops, but most of them hardly had any churches to lead. Not long after Augustine's death, the king Ethelbert, who had first allowed the missionaries, died. But his son and heir converted back to paganism, and the new churches all but fell apart. Soon there were only a few bishops left in Britain, and at even one point they were driven out. While it looked dark for the Roman mission in Britain, conversion did slowly begin to take place again, largely thanks to missionaries from other places. Between 605 and 650, several different and mostly independent missions began having success. A German missionary named Berinus baptized a king of the West Saxons in 635. Many Celtic missionaries from Ireland began to have success in East and North Britain. One of the most famous of these monasteries was on the northern island of Lindisfarne, founded by the monk Aidan. Through these small, independent missions, by 650, the majority of Britain was at least nominally Christian. However, the same tensions remained that caused problems between the Britons and Augustine. Should this new English church continue as a more independent church, like the Celtic Church of Ireland? Or should it be more structured and organized in connection with Rome? The problem once again came to head in the question of the date of Easter. The Christians who'd been converted by the Irish held to one date. Those converted by Rome and the other missionaries from the continent held to another. In 664, a Christian king in Northumbria, that's in the northern part of England, not quite to Scotland, held a church council, the Council of Whitby. Ultimately there, the king chose the Roman date for Easter, and before long, almost all the churches across England followed suit. The importance of this particular council is debated, but many see it as the beginning of a singular English church. It may seem strange to us that the date of Easter was such a divisive and controversial issue, but the churchmen of the time saw it as directly showing the unity of the church. If they could not be united in the date of Easter, were they really united at all? And this debate was not just held in England. This problem of dating Easter had caused problems in the church since at least the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. It's not the last time we'll see Christians who've gone before us fighting over seemingly trivial things. But who knows how Christians of the future will view us. So at this point, the English church was beginning to grow into a single body. But it was still overall disunited and unorganized. The churches had sprung up from different missionaries from different places with different customs and under different kings. However, in 669, a new archbishop arrived to Canterbury, and this archbishop would prove that he was exactly the man the church needed for the job. He's a man who deserves much praise, 
but most people have never heard of him before. His name was Theodore of Tarsus. Now, Theodore all by himself is a very interesting character, and that's easy to see just from his name. Theodore was born in Tarsus, and you might know that name. It's in modern southern Turkey, and if you are wondering, yes, it is the same Tarsus that the Apostle Paul was from 600 years before. Theodore was born in the year 602. At that time, Tarsus was part of the Byzantine Empire, which is really just the eastern half of the Roman Empire that did not collapse when the West did. But what I think is very impressive is that still in this time, in the chaos of the 600s, the church was united enough that a monk could be born and trained in the far east Mediterranean and end up serving as an archbishop a thousand miles away in England. Now, Theodore was probably trained in one of the best schools of the East, Antioch. Here, he most likely learned all the academic arts available of that day. However, he probably had to flee in the 630s from a Persian invasion. The Persians were beaten back by the Byzantine Empire, but Theodore had to flee again in the 640s because of an entirely new force on the geopolitical stage, the Arab Muslims. Theodore then spent the rest of his early life in Constantinople, the capital of the Byzantines. He first was probably there as a refugee, but apparently he still was able to study and learn all he could. Sometime later, Theodore came to Rome. There he became a monk of great knowledge, and like Gregory before, of great administrative skill. Also similar to Gregory, the Pope at the time, Pope Vitellian, took notice. In 668, Pope Vitellian anointed Theodore to be Archbishop of Canterbury, an office that had fallen on hard times since Augustine had left. This appointment was partially because of the recommendation of an esteemed abbot from North Africa, Hadrian, who was friends with Theodore. Hadrian would accompany Theodore, and the two would arrive in England early the next year, in 669. Theodore immediately recognized the sorry state of the English church. The church buildings were in shambles, the clergy was leaderless. So Theodore got to work and began structuring it into a coherent body. So first he systematically split up the country into several bishoprics and placed new bishops and priests in empty stations. He held an official national council at Hertford, one of the first ever for the whole country, and lay down a set of rules for unity and peace in belief throughout England. As anyone who has been in a church should know, this did not happen without a few toes being stepped on. In Theodore's new organizational structure, one bishop in the north, named Wilfred, would have his bishopric divided into several different pieces. Wilfred resisted all he could, and finally Theodore had to depose him. Everything Theodore had accomplished was threatened when Wilfred appealed to the Pope, and the tension mounted even higher. But through the Pope's counsel, and some tact and patience, eventually a compromise was reached. Wilfred would be reinstated in his home of York, but the rest of the land would be subdivided according to Theodore's plan. To both of their credit, they publicly reconciled, and the reorganization continued smoothly. In this restructuring, Theodore proved himself to be a tireless administrator. He made sure regular meetings were held between bishops, so they actually talked and worked with one another. He tried very hard to bring multiple ethnic missionary endeavors together, especially the Celtic and the Roman, which, as we remember, didn't get along very well. And as many organizations often need, he got to the work of rooting out corruption, and stopping any abuse of power. While all this is impressive, Theodore's greatest achievement was most likely the learning that he brought to the island. 
Theodore brought with him many books, sacred and secular, and great personal knowledge. He did, after all, study at three of the greatest cities in the Christian world at the time, Rome, Constantinople, and Antioch. Theodore and Hadrian were masters of Latin and Greek, and were well-versed in classical literature and the works of the Church Fathers. With a wealth of knowledge from these sources, the schools that they started quickly became some of the greatest in all of Europe. One student named Adelhelm complained that he did not have enough time to learn everything that Theodore and Hadrian could teach. The historian Bede, writing fifty years later, said about them, They were both extremely learned in both secular and sacred literature, and thus attracted a great crowd of students into whose mind they daily poured the streams of wholesome learning. They gave their hearers instruction not only in the books of Holy Scripture, but also in the art of meter, astronomy, and ecclesiastical computation. As evidence of this, some of their students still survive who know Latin and Greek just as well as they know their native tongues. End quote. The school grew, especially as some teachers began taking trips to Rome to gather books and relics. One of these men, a man named Benedict Biscop, a native of Northumbria, helped Theodore and Hadrian found a school in Canterbury. Biscop, after returning home from one of these trips, wanted to spread the learning of Canterbury even farther north, back to his homeland. So, in 681, he founded the Monastery of Jaro in Northumbria. This monastery under Biscop, and later under the abbot Cleofred, would soon surpass Canterbury's school, and every other school in Europe at the time. This monastery in Jaro would produce what is now the oldest surviving complete Latin Bible, called the Codex Amiatinus. Also, the nearby island of Lindisfarne would also produce the Lindisfarne Gospels, a book that is also a visual work of art. In each page, there's complexly and colorly crafted pictures combining Roman, Mediterranean, and Celtic influences. The greatest product of Jaro, however, is a man that I've already mentioned several times in this episode, the historian and the churchman known as the Venerable Bede. Bede was born in 672, almost 60 years after Augustine had died, and just as Theodore and Hadrian were founding their schools. Bede became a student of Jaro as Biscop founded it in 681. Much of what we know about this period comes from Bede's own writing, including what we know about himself. At the end of his great work, The Ecclesiastical History of the English People, he also says this small section about himself. Thus, much concerning an ecclesiastical history of Britain, and especially the race of the English, I, Bede, a servant of Christ and a priest of the monastery of the blessed apostles St. Peter and St. Paul, which is at Wearmau and at Jaro, have, with the Lord's help, composed, so far as I could gather it, either from ancient documents or from the traditions of the elders or from my own knowledge. I was born in the territory of the said monastery, and at age seven I was, by the care of my relations, given to the most reverend Abbot Benedict Biscop, and afterwards to Cleofred, to be educated. From that time I spent my whole life within that monastery, devoting all my pains to the study of scriptures and amid the observance of monastic discipline, in the daily charge of singing in the church. It has been ever my delight to learn or teach or write. In my nineteenth year I was admitted to the diaconate, in my thirtieth to the priesthood, both by the hands of the most reverend Bishop John and the biting abbot Cleofred. From the time of my admission to the priesthood to my present fifty-ninth year, I have endeavored for my own use and for that of my brethren to make brief notes upon the Holy Scripture either out of the works of the Venerable Fathers, or in conformity with their meaning and interpretation. B. 
Bede was most likely the best Christian writer and thinker of his time, writing over 60 books. He wrote many commentaries on the Bible, both Old and New Testaments. He wrote several histories and teaching books on various subjects, and also a work on astronomy and timekeeping. But his best-known work by far is his ecclesiastical history. It is from that work that the majority of the material from this episode comes from. As Bede wrote, he would be meticulous and try to name references, sometimes in the margins of his pages, something that was rarely done at the time. Sometimes he made specific notes for scribes who would later copy his work to include those references, although, sadly, those notes were sometimes ignored. While Bede was a prolific thinker and writer, he is unlike Theodore or Augustine, because he hardly traveled at all. While Theodore and Hadrian traveled thousands of miles, as far as we know, Bede never traveled more than a hundred miles from where he was born. He was content to study, to learn, and to pray in his home. And apparently it did not hamper his writing or his learning. From his writing he seems to be genuinely humble, moderate, and inquisitive, though he occasionally does show some of his Anglo-Saxon biases, especially against the native Britons. He apparently loved music and poetry. He was possibly even married, as once in his commentaries on Luke he states, Formerly I possessed a wife in the lustful passions of desire, but now I possess her in the honorable sanctification and true love of Christ. Some scholars think this is only a rhetorical device, however. One legend of Bede comes to us from one of his disciples, Cuthbert. Bede at this point was old and ill, but he still would not give up his pursuit of learning. The legend says that he was dictating commentary on the Gospel of John to a boy named Wilbert. When Wilbert told Bede that it was finished, Bede said, Thou hast spoken the truth. It is finished. Take my head in thy hands, for it much delights me to sit opposite any holy place where I used to pray, that so sitting I may call upon my Father. Then he sang, Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he died. He died in 735, at the age of 62 or 63. Bede was the greatest product of this golden period of English learning, but he was not the only great scholar and certainly not the last. One of Bede's students, Egbert, started another school in York that would even surpass Bede's school. This English center of learning became so influential that when a new Frankish king by the name of Charlemagne looked to find the greatest scholars and churchmen, he would look to England first. Charlemagne's chief scholar and teacher would be a man named Alcuin of York. Alcuin was one of the key architects in the renewal of learning throughout Europe, known as the Carolinian Renaissance. We'll talk about him in a few episodes. All of that work could never have been started had it not been for the work of these missionaries and churchmen to England. It's strange to think how quickly this island on the edge of the world went from the rustic boonies of the Roman Empire to the center of Christian learning and mission work in only a hundred years. When Augustine arrived in 596, the Christian church on the island was hardly existent. But by the time 696, only a hundred years later, England was producing some of the best scholars and missionaries in the Christian world. Needless to say, countless Christian men and women were involved in this change. However, of the three I focused on, Augustine, Theodore, and Bede, I can't help but thinking Theodore of Tarsus is the one who's most forgotten. Augustine of Canterbury gets remembered sometimes, but mostly it's for being first. But as we heard, his mission had many problems. Bede would show just how far English learning could go, but 
it would be built on the foundation that Theodore of Tarsus had laid. Theodore was the one who did the heavy lifting, and the less flashy job of administration and long-term planning. It was his work that left the English church running so smoothly and harmoniously. It's a shame that most Christians have no idea he existed or know what he did. I should make one final note. I did not spend much time on the Irish missionaries, and the conversion of Ireland, which is a fascinating story in itself, including St. Patrick. If you've read any of how the Irish saved civilization, you'll know how much I skipped over. This skip is only to keep the narrative a little more manageable, since the story of the Irish church stretches back before Gregory the Great, whom I wanted to start with. But just know that the Irish were heavily involved in the Christianization of England and Europe, and they have their own and distinct and impressive history of how they preserved learning and knowledge even before the English. Without the Irish, the English could not have become Christian so quickly. So if you want to learn more, look into How the Irish Saved Civilization by Thomas Cahill. Next week, we'll check out one of the greatest products of these English schools, a man named St. Boniface. He would be so famous, he'd become known as the Apostle of Germany. Thanks for listening. If you want to give any comments or questions, please head to the website, faithfulforebears.com. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks. <laughs>